I am here talking with Tina Marie Casamento, who is currently working on Chasing Rainbows, uh, a Judy Garland bio musical that is currently slated with not a theater yet, no date yet, but they're they're in heavy what? preparations to bring it to Broadway in 2019. Um, she conceived the show. She uh, co-wrote uh, or rewrote some of the lyrics from the songs that are taken from the catalog. And uh, and is producing the show, and is here to discuss with everyone kind of the process of producing a new show from the, from this kind of year out standpoint that we're at right now. Yes, so. the the concept to the stage, which they say, I guess Lin Manuel, it took him eight years with Hamilton, and he already had a a hit on Broadway. So yeah. I don't feel so bad because <laughs> I started this process in like two thousand nine. And I would say that I'm an accidental producer. <laughs> you know, I just have had this idea since I was 14 years old, and I just assumed somebody would do it, and no one did. So here we are. So before we get into talking about everything going on with the show, do you want to again give your elevator pitch about what this show is? Sure. So Chasing Rainbows, The Road to Oz, is about how Judy Garland almost didn't become Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. It's about her young life with her father and her family and their vaudeville career when her name was Frances Gum and how she felt like she needed to become a star in order to keep her family together. Um, it's, a, it's a story about family. And uh, it was inspired because when I was a young girl, um, age seven or so, I, and I saw The Wizard mm -hmm. of Oz, I really related to the girl that played Dorothy. <laughs> I didn't know she was Judy Garland. I just yeah. loved Dorothy. And I related to the farm girl that lived on a farm with her Auntie Em and her Uncle Henry. And I thought, where are her parents? Why doesn't she have parents? Mm -hmm. And then she sang Over the Rainbow. And I thought, oh, that's where her parents are. <laughs> and I really connected with her because I lost my mother when I was four. And I thought, oh, she and I have something in common. And, uh, and then I read bios about young Judy's life, and, and I really connected with her, and that's how I became sort of a, a young Judy Garland fan. <laughs> so what was the process of, I mean, when did you actually come up with the idea for the musical, you know? Well, I mean, it really, it really was something I thought about when I was 14, because I started to listen to all these young Judy, Judy songs, and I thought they were so awesome, mm -hmm. you know, Zing With the Strings of My Heart, and... Uh, and I'm always chasing rainbows and, and all these great songs. And Judy had a quote, the history of my life is in my songs or something like that. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I thought, you know, it would, be, it would make so much sense to use these songs in a musical to tell her story. And, um, and so that was really when it started. But what, what actually happened serendipitously as an adult, I found myself, you know, in 2009 in a very serendipitous situation where... I happened to know of a music publishing company that had just had a couple of successes on Broadway that was looking for ideas for their catalog. And I found myself in this position where I could actually pitch this show to them. And, um, and they said, they said, huh, maybe. Um, there's already a show on Broadway right now about Judy Garland called The End of the Rainbow. And I said, no, but that's the end of her life and it's really sad. I want to tell the story of an underdog who was told she was too fat and not pretty enough and, and you know, whose name was Frances Gum and who had a beloved father that passed away when she was 14 and, and before she did The Wizard of Oz. And, um, and I was very interested in that story. And so they said, great, can you write a treatment? And I was like, sure I can. <laughs> What's a treatment? <laughs> so then I started doing some research on what a treatment was. And I, 
Um, is it like putting ointment on? <laughs> yeah, so a treatment is basically, it's kind of like an outline with ideas of how you want to use the music and how you want to tell the story and what songs you would think about using. And they usually ask you things like, you know, who do you see as the writer? Who do you see as the director? Who do you see as the show? And, you know, you just basically write what your imagination tells you to write. My husband, David, was very, very instrumental in this uh, process because he knew that I had this idea for a long time. And um, so, you know, I wrote the treatment and I made it very clear that, you know, we wanted to, you know, use some of the songs and maybe adjust some of the lyrics and that I wanted to go deeper into the catalog to find songs that told the story properly. And, um, and because my husband happens to be a fabulous arranger, you know, I knew that we were going to take the music and make it feel contemporary and fresh and not like the old-fashioned 1930s songs. Um, what's fun is when I played I'm Always Chasing Rainbows, which happens to be her father Frank's song, um, who was a closeted gay man. Um, I played it for some students, and they thought it was an original new song. They... Mm -hmm. They heard the song and they were so moved by it. They were like, I want that in my book. Who wrote it? And they named some contemporary writers. And I just giggled and said, actually, it was written in 1912. <laughs> so. Um, do you have a demo of this arrangement? That we, I of, do. Of the songs I do. we're talking I, about it, where I we could actually, give people a little snippet of what the I, sound I is? I do. I actually, and it was, it was, we were really fortunate to um, enroll a fantastic singer um, to sing it for us. And, um, and yeah, I'd be happy to share that with you. All right. Let's take a listen. Uh, Chasing rainbows, waiting to find the little bluebird in vain. Why must I want and hope and dream? We'll be right back to this interview after a brief word from our sponsors. Special thanks to our travel sponsor. Are you looking at majoring in theater for a career as a creative artist? I've created a program at the University of Providence in Montana that is designed to meet your goals. If you want to be an artist, you are an entrepreneur. And our BA in Theater and Business Arts is designed for you to learn essential business skills with classes specifically designed for theater artists. You'll also explore different artistic skills to help you develop your talents. And our productions are very student-driven, with a real focus on students creating their own work, so you know how to do that once you graduate. With a senior creative project of your choice and a business senior project of developing your own five-year business plan for your career, after graduation, you'll know exactly what your next steps are. UP also has some great programs like a four-year graduation guarantee and a student loan repayment assistance program. If you'd like to find out more, click on our sponsor link at broadwaybullet.com. Special thanks to our location sponsor. Writers need a full community of support in order to do their important work. That's where DGF steps in. The Dramatist Guild Foundation is a national charity that fuels the future of American theater by supporting playwrights, composers, lyricists, and book writers at all stages of their careers. They do this by sponsoring educational programs, providing emergency aid to writers in need, and offering a free rehearsal space where I recorded this episode. In April of this year, 
BGF launched its New Voices program, which brought trained teaching artists into fourth grade classrooms. These artists led the students in the collaborative creation of their own plays, which were then performed for the school by professional actors. It is crucial that young students are given proper access and training in theater to share their stories and learn the power of their own voices. If you'd like to help support DGF in fostering the writers of tomorrow, please visit dgf.org and be sure to follow them on Twitter at dgfound. Now, back to our interview in progress. Great. <laughs> How's that for a lead? Yeah. Magic of editing. You Magic of editing. Head. And I, you know, I'll have to like make yeah. sure I can say Hugh Panero's name. I don't, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know if I can. I'll just, I'll find out like, what the, what the things are. Let's ask Malini. Do I have to pay him or something? I'd, I'd like to credit him for sure. He's amazing. Yeah. So, um, so is that the singer that you're talking? Yeah. Hugh Panero. He, I've always been such a fan of his vocals and he was so wonderful. Like I, uh, got his information through a friend and he came into the recording studio for us and, and, you know, knocked it out and sang it beautifully. And it was actually, um, that recording is one of the first ways that I got investors when mm -hmm. they heard that recording, they were so moved, um, that it wasn't Judy singing every yeah. song, which is what yeah. people think that, you know, it's going to be a concert of Judy singing Judy's greatest hits, but it's not that. Um, like we have a song in the show called got a pair of new shoes. Mm -hmm. And, uh, anybody who really thinks about the story is like, Oh, is that when she got the Ruby slippers? Why? Yes. Yes, it is. In <laughs> fact, <laughs> how we use that song. And, uh, and our choreographer, Dennis Jones is, uh, turning that into a really fun, you know, tap number. So we have a set of Ruby slippers that have taps on them and, um, you know, so there's some old Hollywood feel in a couple of the production numbers. And uh, it's super fun how these songs just really resonate to her story. Um, the other song that I think is a really interesting use is um, we have a song, You Made Me Love You, which everyone knows Judy mm -hmm. sang on, on you know, uh, Broadway Melody. And she sang it to Dear Mr. Gable, and it was mm -hmm. this adorable song. But we actually introduced the song first as a song sung by the mother about the father and their relationship and how... You know, you made me love you. I didn't want to do it. Because I really believe that Frank and Ethel were, um, you know, they had love for each other. But he was a gay man. Mm -hmm. and, and they married and they had kids. She was a spinster. I guess a spinster. She married late mm -hmm. in life. And I think she wanted to have children. They had a lot in common because they performed together. And, you know, maybe she thought she could change him. Or maybe she married him anyway. Mm -hmm. Who knows? Mm -hmm. Um, but I think there was real love between the two of them, but it just wasn't the kind of love that would sustain, you know, a romantic marriage. Um, so, so we use that song for, for Ethel to sing and it's, it's quite beautiful. And then of course, Judy sings it later in, in the way that we remember, but you know, it's a great way to use the song to tell the story. Now, when you're licensing songs by different, you know, composers and, you know, songwriters, did you stick with this one publisher's catalog or did you dig into other catalogs as well? I digged into a few um, in order to, like, for example, we really needed, this, needed the song Judy um, for our character George Dessel to sing because the story goes that, that, she, that when she was still Frances Gum, she was discovered by George Dessel and she sang on the stage and he said her name was terrible. <laughs> so he, um, you know, names her, he names her Judy Garland, basically. He comes up, helps her come up with the name and she comes up with the name Judy. So I had to go to a different publisher for that. And then Zing With the Strings of My Heart was a very important song that is owned, uh, licensed by Warner. Um, so we had to go to them about that one as well. But mostly I stuck with the EMI Feist Robbins catalog because they were the ones that gave me the development, yeah. developmental uh, deal, uh, collaboration agreement. 
um, which is another funny thing, because when I when they gave me that deal after I pitched it, um, I thought, that's great. What's a collaboration agreement? <laughs> so I had to, you know, hire a lawyer and say, hey, I have the rights to all these songs. What does this mean? Um, because, like I said, I never intended to to be a producer. I just thought I have this great idea and, um, you know, somebody will join me. And, you know, what's happened is along the way, I've just bit by bit just done it myself because uh, because I have the passion and the drive. And um, I sort of left behind a, a, a budding directing career and a, a performing career just as more responsibilities came with this project. Um, so, yeah, I'm an, I'm an accidental yeah. producer. Yeah, so when did, or did you just start slowly getting into more and more production on this? Or was there a point where you're like, you know what, I'm going to produce this? No, mm-hmm. there was never a, a real definitive, like, I am going to produce this. I think I just kept doing things, and then, and then different mentors that I had in the producing world were like, you know you're producing this. And I was like, I am? I, <laughs> you know, I just was kind of going with my gut about what to do next. Um, we, you know, we, we spent three years actually in a waiting period, um, as a very, very prominent, wonderful writer was wanting to write the show, but had so many shows on Broadway, they couldn't really put the time into it. And, um, we parted ways very amicably and then hired Marcosito. And, um, that's when things started to really, you know, really cook in 2014. And with Mark, Mm -hmm. um, you know, just things started happening. We got into the Goodspeed Writers Colony. We worked on the show. We pretty much wrote Act One in a week up there, mm-hmm. um, and then finished writing the show. And then I started saying, "Well, how do I get people to see this?" And then I started just, you know, booking space. And we went to a college, Belmont University, and did a workshop production of it with the students, and it was a huge success. Um, and I just used my contacts, people that I had met over the years, to say, "Hey, I'm working on this musical." Would love to, you know, try it out on its feet. What do you think? Um, you know, raised money from people who knew me as a teacher and just believed in me and um, wanted to help me get started. So, yeah, completely uh, one step at a time. Had no idea that I was going to be the producer, you know. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. What has been reaction within kind of the traditional, you know, producers, you know, <laughs> network to... Um, because this has been uncommon, but now all of a sudden I see like a maybe it's a tra- enough for a trend with Ken Davenport, you know, both writing and producing on getting the band back together, yes, which is yes. opening this fall. He's and you so inventive, and yeah, well, Stacey Mindich, who I, who I think is such a, a an amazing woman, who you know, she was the one who put together the whole team for Dear Evan Hansen, and you know, mm-hmm. she encouraged them to write it, but she had conversations with them to help sort of figure out what they were going to write about, and. So I think she was she and Kent Davenport are, um, you know, really involved in in creating something from scratch. I mean, it's kind of what Hal Prince and um, uh, um, God, I can't think of his name now. <laughs> terrible. Another producer I think I, I, I love her, Sue Frost and Junkyard Dogs. I She's think so strong. Are great at like they don't just they, they don't say I want to do this show and hire out composers, but they get very involved early in and developing you know, new works that other producers aren't doing. I right. think that's a great crop of... I mean, David Stone does it as well, the way that he you know. took Next to Normal and, and when he saw the starts of that and Kevin McCollum and Jeffrey Sellers, of yeah. course. I think what's unique, though, about my particular situation is is it started with a seed of an idea that just continued to grow. Uh, it wasn't like I saw another project and then started developing it. And that's kind of what Stacy I think, did with Pasek and Paul. She saw the talent of those writers and started bringing them together. I'm sure other producers... Do this as well. I mean, I Cameron McIntosh. I mean, yeah. he's 
he's like a force in the industry who yeah. just, you know, has ideas and, um, but I don't know. I mean, it's, um, I, I think, you know, I've had, I could be a one hit wonder. I've had this <laughs> idea since I was 14. So <laughs> who could tell the story better, I guess. But, yeah. um, you know, just to, to use the MGM Hollywood feel for a Broadway musical just seems like a no brainer, especially with an icon like Judy Garland. She's an American icon who almost wasn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, can you imagine like if she didn't get the role of Dorothy, would we even know who she was? Um, other than the Andy Hardy films, but you know, it's, it's, uh, an amazing story that she has and, and she's such an underdog and they didn't know what to do with a teenager. Anyway, I'm rambling. Yeah, I no. get excited. <laughs> <laughs> so right now you had said, and I, I know you definitely don't want to name names yet at the cross you're at, but you, you said you're kind of in the thick of casting now. Yes. So I'm curious what, what all are you discovering as a new producer is involved in, in this dance with casting? Boy, it's complicated because as the show changes and evolves, the tracking system changes and evolves. And we've had, we've been so fortunate to have so many talented people involved in our, in our process. And of course, you know, coming from the performing world, it's, it's so thrilling to give actors jobs Mm -hmm. in my show, you know, like that's (laughs) like a dream come true. Um, and I was a casting director for some time with Bob Klein Casting and Networks. Don't say this too much or Trump's going to claim credit for you again. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. yeah, he did it all uh, by he's, himself. He's a job creator. <laughs> um, but yeah, the casting thing has been so tricky. We've we've had this, um, you know, wonderful set of actors that have come through and developed the, the roles along the way, and we've we've got a great stable of actors that we can pull from. Size of the cast is changing. The needs of the choreographer is changing. Um, we are right now doing a national search um, for our next. Judy's because we're going to need at least three. We've got, we're going to need an understudy and a standby. And it's a huge role. Uh, And we've been using this girl, um, using, I should say, (laughs) we've been fortunate enough to have Ruby Rakos, who's this um, young woman who I discovered at Broadway Artists Alliance. Uh, She sang Zing with the Strings of My Heart and Mm -hmm. sounded just like Judy. And I was like, are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. I wasn't even looking. Mm -hmm. And I brought her into audition and she's just grown with the role and she's gotten rave reviews at Goodspeed and Flat Rock and, um, you know, wonderful actress. So, you know, but we're going to need more. Ruby is, uh, you know, Ruby is a beast. She's, yeah. she's never missed a show, but you know, we, it's, it's a little bit like Frankie Valley. You have to like yeah. hire people and send them to what they call Frankie Valley camp and Tracy <laughs> Turnblad camp to, to teach them how to, you know, have the stamina for the role. So we're doing a national search now and for her, and that's, you know, videos from all over the country are yeah, coming the, in. Evan Hansen role. That is one beast yes. of a, not just vocally in the songs, but when I saw all the yelling and screaming he has to do at the same time as keeping up that pure voice. It's Yep, and that's, <laughs> that's exactly it. And you have to find a girl that looks and sounds like Judy and can play 13 to 17 and, mm. you know, can have a romantic relationship with our, our Mickey Rooney, who's played by Michael Wartella. Mm-hmm. Um, Michael has been with the project from very early on, and we just can't imagine anybody else playing mm-hmm. Mickey Rooney at this point. He's an incredible drummer as well as mm-hmm. M- Mickey Rooney was. So mm-hmm. to have him drum on stage is thrilling. <laughs> Um, Karen Mason has been with us for a long time. She's, oh, we, we interviewed her uh, about a year ago. Oh, yeah. So yeah. Karen is, I've been a fan of hers forever. And um, and she's playing the role of Kay Coverman and Ma Lawler, which is, Kay Coverman is the secretary um, to L.B. Mayer. It's a very relevant story because uh, Kay Coverman really was the brains. Um, but she had to make L.B. Mayer think it was his idea. Yeah. Yeah. I fell in love with uh, with with Karen Mason when I first heard the And the World Goes Round cast out. God, yes. Colored lights, kill me. (laughs) 
<laughs> love her. And she's got a fantastic song in our show that we can't give away. Because <laughs> it's one of the, it's a big aha moment in the show. It's pretty fun. But she's tremendous in the role. And, uh, and you know, I've loved seeing her grow in the role. And, and, you know, just to have a woman playing a character in the 1930s, uh, a strong woman like Karen playing a woman in the 1930s who was basically told, you can be a secretary. That's it. But to learn how much she was really pulling the strings. <laughs> but in the 1930s, if you're a yeah. woman, you're subservient. So I think in the whole Me Too generation, even though there's no, you know, sexual misconduct yeah. with Kate Haverman, it's just interesting the power struggles that women went through. Um, all of our female characters struggle with that in our show. Um, you know, Ethel Gum, who's, you know, a mother just trying to survive, married to a man who loves her, but not in the way she needs to be loved. And Kate Coverman, who's the brains. And, and then poor Judy, who, you know, is this abundance of talent, but nobody knew what to do with her. And, you know, like when you think about people saying lose weight mm -hmm. or, you know, what's a teenager, you know, you either need to be a cute little Shirley Temple type, or you need to be a Lana Turner. We don't know what to do with you. She was always the ugly duckling sidekick. Can you imagine? I mean, how beautiful yeah. she was. And yeah. so, you know, that's body shaming and body images, image uh, things that went on in that in that era. It's a great story for our time. You know, just we can all relate to that now. Um, and then I'm trying to think what else in casting is interesting. I mean, we have a really adorable Shirley Temple and we have a really adorable mm -hmm. baby Francis Gum. Um, you know, the, the kids are ridiculously cute. Um, but it's a fantastic cast and, and, you know, we, we are, um, you know, still fleshing out a few other tracking changes with, with the Roger Eden's character and LB Mayer and, you know, that sort of thing. But yeah, it's, it's been quite a process. I mean, any actor who goes into cast, who goes into an audition, you just have to know that sometimes you're fantastic, but you know, if you don't look like Clark Gable, we can't hire you for that track, you know? we need somebody who looks like Clark Gable or whatever, yeah. or Lana Turner, or whoever it is. Um, it's, uh, I don't know. I think it's hard to be an actor and, and not know going into something like yeah. why you're not right for something. And, you know, to be on this side of it is pretty crazy. You know, <laughs> not just cat, no, my director choosing his cast, but creating it from the ground up and knowing that we have these uh, things that we have to do in order to tell the story correctly. I think every actor needs to get involved on the other side of the business, even if they don't want it, just for that idea, to, to get a different perspective of what people are actually looking for from them. I think they'd all be surprised at how much we are in their camp or feel bad and we can't use them or, you know. Absolutely. We have, we have somebody who um, didn't come along for one of the productions and is now back in the show, you know, just because we can't use somebody that we've loved dearly in a previous cast doesn't mean we're not still thinking about them all the time and trying to think about ways to, you know, utilize and, and celebrate their talent and what they brought to the show. It's, it's really hard. I mean, I think the hardest thing for me is, um, you know, trying to balance the needs to the show to the personal things that I feel for all these people that have contributed to this dream, this thing that's bigger than a dream come true for me. Um, just watching the show evolve. And it's been, you know, it's hard. Um, it's hard to sort of, you know, be in that position and know that you care so much about artists. You know, otherwise I wouldn't be telling a story about an artist named Judy Garland, yeah. <laughs> you know. I'm wondering if you've started the, the process that I keep constantly hearing nowadays from most producers that right now is the most challenging aspect 
which is the dance of finding an open theater. Oh my gosh, that is a challenge for sure. I mean, it's one of the one of the reasons why we sort of sat back and have been quiet for the last you know eight months. We had a full production of Goodspeed Musicals on the main stage um, in two thousand, I think sixteen, fall of two thousand sixteen, and then we had a lab last last summer to sort of like take what we learned from both productions at Flat Rock Playhouse and at Goodspeed and sort of put it in the middle. And it was very successful, and we we gained some new partners and some new funding and some new love from Sony, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also knew there there was a long line for theaters. Um, and being somebody who is not a tried and true name in the producing industry, I have to be very careful and strategic about about how we do this. And I've got I'm surrounded by great people like Three Two One Theatrical Management and Nancy Gibbs and Richard Winkler and Roger Hess and Joanne Bono and all these wonderful producers. But um, we took a little rest so that we could sort of strategically figure out when are we going to get the best chance to get the theater that we want and need. Um, I'm super bummed that they're raising the palace because Judy at the palace would have been amazing. They're raising the palace. I didn't hear this. Yeah. They're, they're closing down the palace theater at some point and then, and then basically going to raise it up and add retail space. I mean, it's been oh, in the oh, news. Yeah. yeah. It's been in like the New York times and, um, but Judy at the Palace well, would yeah, have been so cool. I haven't heard that yet. Yeah, no, it's mm-hmm. insane. But but basically, 2019 is the 80th anniversary of The Wizard of Oz and the 50th anniversary of Judy's death and Stonewall. So, like, to be on Broadway in 2019 for the 2020 mm-hmm. Tony season would be a great, you know, great strategy for us. And I think that's what we're aiming for. So we're really gearing up for that as our, you know, as our breakthrough. And, you know, we just have to convince the the three main powers that be, um, you know, which theater we want and, you know, how we could make that happen. I mean, it's, you know, listen, it, getting a show to Broadway and getting the permission to do something in, in you know, be on in that real estate is, is not a guarantee. But mm-hmm. I'm going to think positively and say, you know, people want to see this show and I want to get the show to Broadway. We have investors. So why not us? Mm-hmm. Why not me? Um, why not Chasing Rainbows, The Road to Oz? Why not Judy Garland? Um, I think people still have an intense interest in her and in The Wizard of Oz. And, you know, the story of her father is, is pretty compelling. Um, but, yeah, we're just, yeah, we're just waiting our turn and trying to be strategic about it. So as you've slowly moved, you know, into the producing position, I'm wondering if you have any humorous anecdotes <laughs> or something that you thought you never realized you'd have to do something this ridiculous, you know, <laughs> as, as a producer. <laughs> well, I will say that one of the, one of the biggest, for me, the craziest thing was we were, you know, talking about one of the productions and, and um, we were talking about the design and, and the director said something like, I don't think we should have Ruby slippers in the show. And I was like, what, <laughs> what, what show are we doing? And this was a, not our current yeah. director. And it was just so shocking to me that that something as obvious as ruby slippers w- was something that you know wasn't wasn't necessarily uh, attractive to, <laughs> to somebody. You know, the ruby slippers are iconic. I don't know if that's that funny to anyone else but me, but I think it's kind of interesting. And I mean, it's all been, I have to say, you know, humbling and overwhelming because it has taken over my life in a way that I never expected it's like the plant in little shop of horrors it just keeps getting yeah. bigger and bigger um you know i mean it's it's been heartbreaking and exciting and funny and fun and um 
you know, I mean, one of the funny things that I think is uh, um, just seeing Michael Wartella in red hair. <laughs> like that was that was pretty crazy trying to make him look like Mickey Rooney. Um, but, you know, when you're creating your own opportunities, you just have to do whatever you can to get the show forward. And I don't even know if I can remember for the last eight years all the crazy things that we've done and, you know, tried to make happen along the way. Uh, we just keep being scrappy about it and, and uh, trying to create a beautiful story. But, man, it's, it's not easy. It is not easy to be a producer. And, you know, somebody once told me I would not wish being a producer on my worst enemy <laughs> team, Marie. And I was like, why? And now I'm like, I get it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I wouldn't change a thing. You know, I'm glad no one really told me how hard it was back then. <laughs> because if they had, I, I would have said I can't do that. But all along the way, I've, I have done it. Mm-hmm. You know, I have been able to... Um, bring things to fruition and make things happen. Um, I don't know. Funny anecdotes. Can't think of them right now. But um, it's been a lot of, you know, joy and, and, you know, to sit in the back of the Flat Rock Playhouse for the first time on opening preview and and see the audience on their feet sobbing at the end of the show, I think was one of the most magical things that ever happened to me. My husband and I sitting together just like thinking, wow, we really have something here. And they get it. And, you know, you sit in the back going, oh, my God, is, is this embarrassing or is this good? And, um, you know, it was pretty thrilling. I do that with all my writing all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea though, most of the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally, totally. I did almost miss our first, um, sta- our first stage reading at New World Stages, which was like, mm. okay, all of the glitterati mm. of Broadway is now going to come and see your first reading in 2014, and it's at New World Stages, and you have this amazing cast, and... And and I woke up at three in the morning with a migraine, vomiting everywhere, and I was like, I'm never gonna make it to the to the theater. And I I almost didn't make it because I didn't want to get on the subway. And I jumped in a cab in Brooklyn and said, I need to get to Eighth Avenue and Fiftieth Street. And he was like, How do I get there? And I was like, Are you kidding me? It's it's a grid. How do you get? You're a taxi driver. Just get me there. And I think I got there within with like ten minutes to spare, and you know, just sat as close to the bathroom as I could so that I wouldn't, you know disrupt anything but i was so nervous there's a humorous anecdote. <laughs> there's my humorous anecdote i couldn't think of it at the time but uh yeah that was it and uh you know i'm not going to make it to my own party <laughs> it's pretty nuts um man that was the worst migraine ever anyway i couldn't believe it so i've got two questions i'm asking everybody to kind of put in kind of a theme you know sound clips in theme related episodes yep. So the first question I'm asking is very actor-related and advice for actors. But what I'd specifically love to hear from you is uh, what advice do you have for actors in terms of dealing with a producer or what you do? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think the most important thing to remember is that a producer you know, just wants to produce the show and wants to find the best actor. And if you are the best actor and you need to, you know, you need to be talking to a producer, if you appear confident and cool and collected, because producers are generally really stressed out most of the time juggling a lot of plates and dealing with the competition of raising money and and getting a theater so being as calm and professional and you know easygoing as possible is the is the best scenario um i mean you know let's face it that the, the um casting directors and the directors are the gatekeepers mm-hmm. so you're going to you're going to go through them before you ever get in front of a producer but producers are generally just super excited for any actor that's a part of their project. So, 
you know, approaching them like real people and like you don't need something from them, I think is the best, the best plan. Um, I mean, that's from my point of view, even as somebody who was an actor, because I can think about yeah. how excited I would have been to sit down with somebody creating a show. And now I am that person and yeah. I'm thinking, oh, it's just me. It's just Tina Marie. Who cares? You know, like just being real is the, I think, the hardest thing to do when you're an actor and you just want so much to, to do the best job that you can. Um, I don't know if that's advice or not, but. Yeah. Um, the second question is on the, so that's kind of creative working end of it. Now, advice for av or actors or any artist really on the business end, you know, what, what should, what can they do to take care of their business? You know, it's a really great question because I, I have always taught, like I've been a teacher for a really long time and I've, I love teaching. I'm passionate about it. And I've always said to my students, you have to create your own opportunities. You can't just sit around and wait for somebody to give you permission to do your art. And so anything you can do to find a way to, to feed your soul, because if your soul is dead, you're going to feel it the minute the person walks in the room to audition. You're, you're exhausted from auditioning or whatever. And I feel like the business side of it is really about coming up with a business plan about how, mark, you know, how you're going to market yourself you know, what's going to feed your soul. If you're dying to play, you know, Mrs. Lovett in Sweeney Todd, doesn't matter where you do it. If you just need to do it to feed your soul, find out who's doing it and, and what the contract is and get yourself, you know, on tape or whatever. Nowadays we have yeah. the opportunity to actually videotape auditions and get them to whoever. So it's always surprising to me that actors, you know, will go to these auditions day in, day out, but they're not targeting themselves specifically for things that they want to do. Yeah. So. Yeah, you mentioned business plan, and that's actually at, at our theater and business arts yes. program. You Providence, they have a creative senior project, but their senior project on the business side is we do help them actually develop a five-year business plan, right. with, you know, and help them find ways that they can be actionable towards moving towards the goal. This I'm not just passive and waiting for auditions, but what happens if you're not getting cast, and what are things that you can do, you know, to totally. still work and meet people and work with people and and and. Right. Move and towards that goal. Part of it is, too, just making sure that you surround yourself with people that will help you continue to create. And, you know, wh who is your who is your family, your theater family that's going mm -hmm. to make you feel safe and comfortable so you can, you know, succeed in life? Um, you know, who where is your job that you can just know that you can make money and survive and live so you're not stressed about that? Like anything mm -hmm. an actor can do to, like, keep the stress level down so that you can do your art. And feed your soul. You know, like I love that some of my Belmont students will get together once a month and just sing for each other or sing through a score for fun or whatever, just to feed your soul. And I think it's all a good part of the business plan because if you know you're right for a role, you really should learn that role and and wouldn't that be fun? Mm -hmm. Just to be prepared to go in and do that role someday. Um, and you know, figure it out what roles are you gonna be right for ten years from now. There's part of your business plan. Because, mm, yeah. you know, I wasn't right for Mrs. Lovett fifteen years ago, but I will be now or whenever. So like that would be part, that would have been part of my business plan if I had stuck with performing after, mm -hmm. you know, touring and stuff. Um, but no, I'm so glad that you do that because I think actors don't think of themselves as a, as a business. And they are, they're an entrepreneur. They're, they're, they're their own business. They may be working for somebody at the moment, but that's not going to be forever. Or do they really want to sit in the right. 10 years in long running production of, I mean, right. some people, that's the dream. For some people, all of a sudden, they Security. find... Security. Yeah. Yeah. The lame is, the lame is men who, yeah. stay, who stayed in the show until they were 
you know, too old to be students <laughs> in the, uh, you know, but it was a great job. And who wouldn't want to stay in that show and sing that I music? Mean, I, I thought I read that there was one person who was acting in Cats from beginning to end. Wow. Uh, Must have been a very fit person. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's tough. It's tough to stay with the show for a long time and continue to find mm. the relevance in performing that role. And if you have a passion for it and, you know, that's your job, great, mm -hmm. you know. Um, just, just to be able to be involved in a show that is continued employment for you is, I think, amazing. Um, you know, I think about Stephanie Clemens starting in In the Heights, and, yeah. and then now Hamilton has become her full-time job, and, and she's still creating other things and feeding her soul because she's just a beast, and I love her. She's amazing. Yeah. And we've interviewed her on this episode, too, so you can go back and listen to what she has to say oh, about Oh, I will. <laughs> <laughs> So, well, this has been a wonderful talk about chasing rainbows, and I wish you the best of luck, and Thank we'll put you. out good thoughts for you to hit that in 2019. I'm, Thank I'm, you. I'm sure our listeners found it interesting to just hear what's going on at this process, not only with your show, but what other producers are, are dealing with at this stage. Um, again, Tina Marie Casamento? That's right. All right. <laughs> um, last name was what had me. I don't think there's an O on the, yeah, on the sheet. I want to say one more thing, if this okay. is useful, is that, you know, I think actors don't realize that producers work for sometimes eight and ten years and never make a dime. Some people think producers are greedy and, <laughs> and don't want to pay the actors. It's really not about that. You know, I mean, I, I at least from yeah. where I'm sitting... I wish I could be paying everybody tons of money, but we want to keep we want to keep theater. I think in our industry, we want to keep theater as something that is about the art and not about the um, just the amount of money it costs to put a show on Broadway. And, and we don't want it to just be people that are you know coming from corporations that have that kind of money, although they produce beautiful mm -hmm. shows as well. But you know, as a producer, yeah. I will say I have a completely different point of view as far as like an actor producer relationship and i just kind of wanted to put that out there because yeah. you know sometimes you don't can't pay an actor a lot of money and that kind of sucks but we're not making any money either so <laughs> <laughs> i'll get there together yeah we'll all get there together we all have to work together all right well it's been a pleasure talking thank you and have fun with the next step thank you